I am delighted to welcome you all here tonight. For those who don't know me, I'm Catherine Refshorgi, the Dean of the Faculty of Health Sciences, which is the host of this event tonight. But before we begin, I'd like to pay respects to the traditional owners of the land, the Gadigal people of the Aori Nation. It's on their land that we're meeting here tonight. I always also like to pay respect to the Wongal people also of the Aora Nation because it's on their land that the Lidcombe campus is built and that's where a lot of this work is conducted. So this tonight is the fourth in our series of Sydney Ideas lectures. Um, it's um, the Sydney Ideas is a, uni a university-wide lecture series, but the Faculty of Health Sciences is co-hosting a series. And what we aim to do is to take the most recent research and bring it to you in a way that you can use that makes a difference tomorrow. So we've got our top researchers partnered with key people in their area speaking to you. And they present in a way that is theoretically supposed to encourage interaction and debate. So when they finish speaking, feel free to ask anything, okay? <laughs> if they're looking uncomfortable, I'll field it. But this is the chance for you to actually ask questions that are on your mind um, and, and to debate the issues. Over the year, over the four series, the series of four lectures, we've had some amazing topics. We've, had, we've been talking about school canteens and guidelines. We've been talking about mental health support. And tonight, I'm hoping will be just as interesting, but probably even more so. Tonight, we've got two remarkable women presenting. So we've got Sally Crossing, um, who is well known for her work in consumer advocacy. Our other speaker, Sharon Kilbreth, will actually introduce her, but I do want to say that Sha Sally has had the most impressive career that we were just speaking earlier. Everyone thinks your career is linear and your life linear like that, but it's been all over the place and she's landed in the most amazing place where she's doing incredible work. But Sharon will introduce her. She's from, she was, she's, founded the Breast Cancer Action Group in 1997 and more recently is working with Cancer Voices, which includes all cancers. So, and I have to say that next week, actually, we're presenting Sally with an honorary doctorate from the university, which is... <laughs> and honorary doctorates are not lightly given. They are, the university has to approve them as a whole process. So it's just evidence of the remarkable work that she's been doing. But first, we have another remarkable woman, Professor Sharon Kilbreth, who will be speaking to us tonight. Sharon's a professor of physiotherapy in our faculty, the Faculty of Health Sciences, and she was a National Breast Cancer Foundation Research Fellow for five years. She's not only highly regarded for her work in breast cancer, but she's actually one of the founding members of research into rehabilitation after breast cancer. And I don't know if I'm allowed to speak a little bit about your journey, but we have here two survivors of breast cancer, in fact, in the audience, many, but both our speakers are survivors of breast cancer. And um, when Sharon was diagnosed, she was looking for the research about rehabilitation, and guess what? There was nothing. And so the surgeons are saying, but I saved your life. And she's saying, 
but I've got a whole life ahead of me. I have to live it to the full. She had children, two years old, one year old. She has a full life ahead of her. So that's where it started, and she is one of our world leaders in this area, the world leader, actually. She was one of the first researchers to be awarded the Pink Circle Award by the National Breast Cancer Foundation, and that was in 2010 in re recognition of her work and the huge research funding that she's attracted for this work. She leads a whole team of laboratory-based and clinical researchers, just energetic, dynamic young people. <laughs> it's fantastic. We have... Um, a uh, really good succession plan, carrying out world-first and world-class research into diagnosis and treatment of lymphedema and other com complications that arise after breast cancer treatment. So tonight, Sharon will present her latest research findings, which challenge current treatment practices and beliefs. Sharon is a mythbuster. You have to know that first. And um, she's, uh, there, she has a particular focus on lymphedema that is considered incurable. Once you have it, you have it. What do we do then? Um, and other types of painful chronic swelling in the arm and the chest, which has been really undervalued, under understood, under-recognised, um, which often are, are consequences after surgery. So there will be the opportunity for questions after Sharon and Sally's presentations. Write them down. Thank you very much, Sharon. Much. I'm, it's really um, my pleasure to be here. I'm very, I love talking about this topic. So actually, Kathy stole some of my thunder. Um, what she hasn't said is that she actually is a major research colleague. I mean, besides being my friend, um, is a, we have gone through this journey together in a lot of the research projects. Um, so she owns this data just as much as I do. So. Going back, as Kathy said, 2001, I had breast cancer, and what do you do? You go and use the resources you have to find out what does it mean, what are the implications. And so you find that, yep, you've got cancer, but this is what sort of confronts you. This is what you might get, likely get, is a very strong message. Okay, so. Then go on and you've had your surgery and some really keen person comes to your bed perhaps and gives you sheets of information. Implicit is that is that activities that you do, you know, it's your fault, might be why you develop lymphedema. Okay? It might be things like airplane travel, lifting heavy weights. Medical, having, allowing medical procedures to your arm on the side of surgery. I see nodding heads around the room. Um, doing, the, the one I always loved when you look at the information sheets was scrubbing bathroom tiles. That's a no-no. Well, I tell you, I didn't scrub the tiles before cancer, and I certainly haven't gone back and done it since then. So that was a safe one to follow. And the other thing is extreme temperatures. Now I can remember I went home, I had my surgery, I went back, I had this auxiliary node dissection where they went and removed a lot of, the, most of the nodes in there. And the first thing you do is you go and you pick your child up. I had a two-year-old who 
was not the slimmest child at the time. Quite solid, thought, oh crap, I've done that one, now I'm gonna get it. Then you go along, and I can still remember sitting in the doctor's office, I had a flu shot on that side, I thought, oh, that's really gonna blow it. Um, and it's things I was doing that cause it. And I don't have arm lymphedema. So, do we actually know what does cause chronic arm swelling? As I said, Kathy has been involved right from the beginning with me. So the first study that we did was looked at exercise. Does it actually cause lymphedema? What we saw was that women diagnosed with early breast cancer, with breast cancer, they're so afraid of using their arm that they keep it like this broken chicken wing, but they're getting all these other impairments. The information didn't make sense. What I received as a patient um, in line with the physiology and what we know about exercise. So we decided to um, put our toe in the water and see what happened. We received funding from Cancer Council New South Wales to do this randomized control trial. We, recruit, we didn't want to stress the women early at um, early, you know, at the time of diagnosis for this study. This was our first big study that we did. So we recruited them. We brought them into the trial around four weeks post-surgery. Women were randomized, like a flip of the coin. You had usual care, what was going on there, or you received an exercise program. Our exercise program was very different. My background was in stroke rehabilitation. That's what I was lecturing in, neurologic um, rehabilitation following stroke. We stretch patients for 20 minutes. None of this sort of brief things, walking fingers up the wall, that sort of thing. We do sustained stretching. So number one, our women did, they lay down, they only did a couple of stretches, but it really focused on the chest wall. The other thing that we did, and we were really nervous about this, is we had women lift weights. Given all the literature about lifting, you know, the warnings, we were afraid we were going to cause a lot of problems and really monitored them closely. Women were given, they started with a very light weight. The focus was on getting the arm right up above the head and out this way. This is where we need it. If you look at a lot of the exercises, they're down here. That's not where they need it. So they had an eight-week intervention and we brought them back and measured them at the end and then followed them up six months later. The control group, we went, we chatted with them, we didn't talk about, we were very broad things, but they felt loved um, being in that group too. Okay, this is the data. I am pleased to tell you, exercise in that early period, resistance training up in that area, did not cause women's arms to swell. Okay, let me orientate you. There's two panels there. One is the auxiliary note dissection. That's the one I want to focus on. The baseline measures are those taken at four weeks post-surgery. What we're looking at is the frequency of women having swelling, and we use bioimpedance. I'm not going into that during this talk. If you want to talk to me later, about happy to. It's highly valid, highly reliable, and it's focusing on detecting early changes indicative of lymphedema. What you can see at baseline, more women in the exercise group than the control group had swelling. Look at how the tables changed by eight weeks. Fewer women in the exercise group than the group with the, in the usual care had arm swelling. 
I can confidently say we did not make women's arms swell by having them do resistance exercises daily. Okay, so that was the first thing that we challenged all those things you're given. The thing to remember too is this is progressive exercises, but this isn't being a weekend warrior where, right, she said I can do exercise, I go to the gym and I lift 20 Ks above my head sort of thing, not that. They started light, but each week we did progress. The second thing that we investigated was whether airplane travel causes lymphedema. Um, we received a, small, a research donation from ImpediMed to investigate this. Um, this was an opportunistic study. It's no way an RCT or anything else, we wish it wasn't. That we um, knew that women in Canada were going to be attending the International Dragon Boat Regatta in Calandra, Queensland. So we organized for um, Margie McNeely and Susan Harris, Don McKenzie organized to have women measure, their arms measured before they boarded the plane in Canada. And we sent women, um, so it sent a couple of research assistants to a Calandra to capture women as they got off the bus. They were, went from the plane in Brisbane straight onto a bus and landed in Calandra. Now the hotel rooms weren't ready, so I've been told that what the, the Canadian women were really keen to enjoy Australian hospitality, so what they did for um, Liz Dilk and a couple of the other people that were up there, laid down on the boardwalks to get their arms measured with violence. <laughs> they were keen to be involved and they were happy to do it, but we got the data. We also had a small cohort of Australians for domestic flights. So, we measured women within two weeks of the flight, the Canadians, um, international, the Australians, within 24 hours of landing. And then the Canadian ones, the, our Canadian colleagues, followed up as many as they could six weeks after they returned back to Canada. Now this is, was an opportunistic trial. We couldn't <coughs> control for how many flights women had taken, whether they did the proper exercises, drank fluids on the flight, what sort of luggage they carried, all of that sort of thing. So it was just, it was truly a suck it and see it study to see what was the consequence of flights, long distance flights in particular. I'm pleased to say for these women that were heavily involved in exercise, those Canadian women, they came out here to win. They were training quite regularly um, in a moderate to high intensity. Um, at four weeks, there was only two women that had elevated impedance ratios, indicative swelling that they didn't have going into the study. One of the women did have controlled lymphedema um, when we talked to the people over there. So it isn't, the, there might be one or two people that as a consequence of flying, they do develop a lymphedema, but it's not the big bad things that we're led to believe when you're getting these, re, you know, the warnings, the intense warnings. So those are two studies that didn't seem to align with the information sheets that I personally had been given and I know that a lot of other people had been given. So we decided to take a much more systematic approach to this and receive funding from Cancer Australia and National Breast Cancer Foundation to study this in a systematic way. 
This is our protocol. We've changed now. We're much more, um, we're going to recruit women before surgery. We wanted the baseline measures. This we thought was quite important. So again, bioimpedance was our spectroscopy, the interlimb ratio, for those who are aware of it, um, was the, our tool for classifying whether women had or had not developed lymphedema. So at baseline, even though women had up to 40 lymph nodes affected, their ratios were within the normal range. However, once they had surgery, there was all of a sudden we see a shift that there were a group of women where their BIS ratios did increase above thresholds indicative of arm swelling. So we took the measurements at baseline, they had their surgery, we wanted to capture them within four weeks of having surgery so that we could get them into doing a weekly diary. This was really important. I've had breast cancer, I've done things, and then you try, you know, within even three or four weeks, trying to recall back what happened. Forget it. So if you're expecting people to recall six months or a year later whether things had happened, you're fooling yourself about the robustness of your data. We had women do it. It was, um, for most of our women, they used SurveyMonkey. We would send out an email every Monday morning. It was just like watching the stock market as the numbers, as everyone started to respond. It was really a brief survey, just what events had occurred since your last diary entry. Preferably weekly, some of them, as you see, went a bit longer than that, but just that short period. We then measured women at, they kept the diaries for 18, um, for the 18 months, we physically measured them at 6, 12, and 18 months as well. Now note, the weekly diaries were really focusing on all those events that you're cautioned about. So did you get mosquito bites? Did you get arm trauma, mosquito bites, sunburns, fractures, splints, sprains, whatever, on the side of surgery? Did you overuse that arm? Did you go on any domestic or international flights, um, environmental changes, including scuba driving. We did have a couple women do that. Um, trying to see what else. The other thing that we had in this diary um, was whether women had experienced any treatments on the at-risk arm in the preceding week, as you'll see it comes back to be important. We um, recruited around 510 women. We have data on 451 women where we've got their baseline data and the 18 months data to know whether or not they had swelling at 18 months. So what are the risk factors? It's quite frustrating. We know that auxiliary dissections, uh, no dissections, we know radiotherapy to the axilla are critical in triggers for lymphedema. That's been in the literature for decades now. Not surprising, that's what we found. I'm presenting these data as relative risk. And so anything to your right increases the risk of lymphedema. Anything to the left decreases it. Something aligning on the one is no risk. It's not either, either direction. Okay. Not surprising, auxiliary node dissection has a relative risk compared to central node biopsy of five. So you're five times more likely to have it than central node. Guess what? 20% of women with auxiliary node dissection, that's the statistic we always see, develop lymphedema. 
So we get that, um, see that there. Radiotherapy. This isn't going to help us do anything with the data. This data has been in the literature for 20 years, how we used it clinically. So we decided to take a different approach. We looked at, we divided the two groups. We looked at those that were essentially sentinel no biopsy. Um, to the horrors of the surgeons on our team of researchers, I said, okay, it's less than five because we had sentinel node biopsies with 15 nodes removed. Um, we had auxiliary node dissections with three nodes removed. So we thought we need to get something a little bit clear here. So we've done it this way. As you can see, if you only have a few nodes removed, 3% get it. Um, we'll have swelling at 18 months. In contrast, if you have 209, um, sorry, more than five nodes removed, 209's a lot, um, 38 women, 18% had it. They're different kettles of fish. We need to analyze them differently. Um, now the good news is that the, sorry, the five plus nodes removed, practices have changed. Um, when I had my surgery, I was the, probably the last year before auxiliary node dissection was almost routine practice. They brought in central node biopsies. They've now brought in much more um, aggressive treatments using um, neoadjuvant um, chemotherapy. So the auxiliary node dissection is being used significantly less. So um, at our, well, it's now Lifehouse. It's around 20, less than 25% of women will undergo auxiliary node dissection. This is really good news. Those high, they're still high risk, but the proportion being diagnosed with breast cancer are considerably less. Okay, let's look at those with five, less than five nodes removed. There is 3% that do develop it. What are the risk factors? Really, the only thing that came out was being obese, not just slightly overweight, obese. They had a BMI of 32, so that's quite big. Those are the women, the clinicians, I see a few of them, our colleagues from the clinical environment, those are the women you need to particularly monitor because they are going to be high risk. Surprisingly, they were more likely to have swelling postoperatively even, elevated ratios postoperatively, whereas those with auxiliary node dissection often came a bit later. So that's all I'm going to deal with with the less than five nodes removed group. I'm going to focus on those high risk women, the ones that had five plus nodes removed. Okay, what other factors are related to development of lymphedema at 18 months, swelling at 18 months? So these are all the different clinical variables that we can look at. Clinical stage three versus clinical stage one, two treatment to the axilla versus radiotherapy to the axilla versus no radiotherapy to the axilla, three plus nodes affected. This group of variables are all essentially explaining the same thing. Women with clinical stage three um, tumors are, have lots of nodes removed. They have the nodes affected. That's why they're clinical stage three. They are the ones that, that are they are using radiotherapy to the axilla. So that, the woman is not going, nothing the woman does is going to impact on that. That is a risk factor for her. Secondly, came out here, is the taxane-based chemotherapies. You talk to the clinicians in the area, oh yeah, I noticed that they swell. 
it's swelling preferentially on that arm on the side of surgery. And we just had a paper published um, by um, our team, which shows that those women actually, they are more likely to have sustained swelling in that at-risk arm after the cessation of chemotherapy. This is further evidence. That is a risk factor. We've got to take seriously what's happening to the women and be proactive about it. Demographic risk factors, um, being slightly older, <laughs> I'm older than 53, it's not old yet, um, but it's, this was a group that it was very inclusive. We had unfortunately quite a few young women in our study, so it was just older, not old. Um, you had an increased risk and body weight. Notice the um, BMI and body weight, there's some studies, particularly in the US, that are really come out strong about obesity, that being overweight is a very big predictor. It was with the sentinel biopsy, it's less of a factor with the axillary node dissection. It didn't come out as strongly. Could be in the US, certainly, they're bigger. Our BMIs, our mean BMIs, tend to be lower than those that have come out of the US. Not surprising, those two are explaining the same variable. Now, these are the things that we're cautioned about. Remember what I told you? If it's an increased risk, you want both the mean and the confidence bars to be to the right of one. Um, now the blue items down there, the four plus blood pressure, injections, blood drawn, arm trauma, they are all events that have occurred to the at-risk arm. Okay. Travel, none of these are overwhelming being risk factors for development of lymphedema. Okay. Exercise, again, really neither here nor there. It's not going to hurt the person physiologically for a whole bunch of reasons. Exercise is very good during this traumatic period. It's again, not causing lymphedema. Um, the, on the left are the broad categories, and the examples that we gave the women when filling the form are on the right. Wide error bars, it crosses one. These are not suggesting that it is the risk factor. Okay. Next, we did something again, another unique feature with this study. We've previously shown that transient swelling occurs in the first year. It's common in that first year. Um, what we did, rather than consider as lymphedema, we considered it as a risk factor for that more sustained swelling at 18 months. And so you can see the risk, um, the risks are all to the right of one, well away from one. I also want to draw your attention to a few things. Note that the scale has increased on the x-axis. This is now out to 100, not just to 10, but to 100. If you look, 5 is the, where the relative risk for auxiliary node dissection sat. This is further out than that. And all those things that women are told to focus on and really think about, that's down there. Okay? To me, this is important. So we know that this is an important risk factor. Are we doing anything about it in that first year? Well, we've got some data to show you. 
Um, so first of all, it is important. <laughs> um, so yet, so one of the things, as I mentioned with our um, study, is we also asked women, did they have anything, treatments on that at-risk arm? So we've just had an honor student literally finish to submit the document um, for her honors a week ago. Her job was to look at what occurred to women who were identified with physical changes um, of arm swelling. So we took the data and looked at it as period A, period B, period C. We could include more women that way with completed diaries. The number of diaries inclusive in this was around 308 to women with diaries, uh, more than 50% of diaries complete ranged from 308 to 315. Um, in section A, I've only memorized it for this one, there were 66 women all told that had swelling either at the beginning, throughout, or at the end. Now, what I'd like to point out is that um, massage is wonderful, it feels great. Um, however, the evidence is not strong for it. The evidence is very strong for compression. <coughs> Women are getting massages, are reporting they've had massage. They are not reporting that they are receiving compression garments when swelling is present. And the real concern is the women that have had the swelling for at least six months. It's not getting picked up um, there. This is where I think we can't identify who is going to be the case that ends up having swelling at 18 months. Roughly it's about 50% of the women with swelling in that first year go on to have sustained swelling. That's the statistics. Our clinical judgment is not that good. We don't have a magic ball at this point to say, yep, you're gonna be fine, forget about you, you're not. We need, I would argue, this is where we need to be much more proactive. This is where we need to focus our attention. At the early changes indicative swelling, do something there. Um, yeah, you can mention, you know, you don't want to go your way to have trauma to that arm or do things, but don't get fussed if it does. This is where our attention needs to be. So, in summary, risk factors related to sweat, arm swelling at 18 months are disease related, treatment related, and failure of the lymphatics. Swelling in that first year is failure of the lymphatics. So the clinical implication is, in women at high risk, like forget about the women with central node biopsy, the majority, they're fine. For these 25% of women going on to auxiliary node dissection, we need to do better. We need to, this is the evidence that shows that we need to monitor them much more closely. We need to be responsive to the early changes. Um, that there's studies done in the US that show that if you put a compression garment on at a 3% increase of arm girth, that it subsides. If we support the lymphatics during this period, we might be able to prevent the full-on development of the disease. An untold question, answer question, which is where our grants are heading. Now, the other thing is I want to come back to this. So, you have been diagnosed with cancer. I saw so many photos of this. I was petrified that this was going to be what my arm would look like um, because I certainly couldn't follow all those rules. Um, we had a student, um, master student, Robin Ciela, do a survey 
of the Breast Cancer Network Group. Um, it was their highest response rate ever. She got 59% received to look at lymphedema. In that sample, we found 57% had no lymphedema, 9% were unsure, and 34% categorically said, yep, I've got it. This is the distribution. We used a scale by, developed by Norman um, in the US. Basically, mild is, you know there's changes, it, you can feel it, it's different, but if anyone looked at it, they say, no, there's nothing different there. Moderate is your partner, someone close to you, your, um, for women with them, your therapist could say, yeah, I don't see the veins on this hand that they're looking for. They would be able to identify. Severe, someone looking across the room looks at your arms, yep, you've got lymphedema. So categories, look at the distribution. 58% have mild, 36% have moderate, um, only a small portion have severe. This is also reflective in a cohort study that went out to five years. Very few women end up with very large limbs um, current, with the current management systems. So rather than showing this in the literature on the websites, etc., I would argue this is what we should be showing, where it is just slight changes. You don't want to scare the person. So I'd like to acknowledge all of the um, grant providers for us. Um, thank you very much. Okay, um, we're going to go right into our second speaker. And I'd like to invite Sally now to come up. Sally has made an extraordinary contribution to breast cancer, um, to improving community engagement in the management of cancer, first of all in breast cancer, but she's expanding, <laughs> taking over the world. Yes, so as was noted at the beginning, um, she also is a cancer survivor. Um, she founded the Breast Cancer Action Group in 97 and has since chaired it. Um, she's also now involved in, has led national Network Cancer Voices since 2000. Um, she's also a member of the Order of Australia for her work that um, she has undertaken in this area. So I'd like you now to um, thank Sally for coming up. Thank you for the very warm welcome. I've been, uh, actually I've been sitting there thinking I better have a better closer look at my arms. No, I know exactly what to <laughs> Well, I well, we're going to <laughs> don't let me get distracted. That's why I have to read, because I do get distracted. <laughs> it, it's very nice for me to be on this side of the lectern at my old university after so many years in the other world. One of the aims of the Sydney Ideas Lecture Series is to share the importance of ideas that make a difference. I'm suggesting to you that health consumer advocacy, and my particular focus on cancer consumer advocacy, qualifies well for meeting that aim. The value of speaking up for people affected by cancer is gradually being recognised and listened to, though many remain unfamiliar with what we do, why we do it, and what difference is actually achieved. So my part of this session 
is to try to answer those questions, including how consumer involvement impacts on breast cancer research and on cancer research in general. Uh, first, let me clarify the background, which we're probably all familiar with, in which cancer consumer advocacy operates. I think it's fair to say that cancer remains the biggest disease challenge we have. Australian cause of death statistics show that cancer has just pipped heart disease-related deaths to become number one. Many Australians are diagnosed with cancer and die of something else. I'm hoping to be one of them. Cancer is big. The gaps in our understanding of how best to treat this disease are also big. Hence the value of research done in this university and others. It's not only about the disease, its early diagnosis and most appropriate treatment, but also the quality of information available, which of course Sharon touched on early in her talk, and the coordination of care and support for people affected by cancer that needs more research and implementation of that research. Many more unknowns remain outstanding than is the case for other major diseases. I get a bit cranky about this from time to time. This is a challenge for academics, clinicians and policymakers. And of course, most of all, we consumer beneficiaries of their efforts. So I thought I'd just touch on cancer myths and good information. This structure of relative uncertainty is a humidity crib for the development of and belief in myths at every step. Sharon's talk demonstrates how this can occur within one specific area of cancer treatment, <coughs> lymphedema. My left arm is affected due to breast cancer surgery, luckily not badly, I don't know whether I'm mild or moderate. So I'm aware, and it happened at 13 years down the track. Um, so I'm aware of the myths and legends, both those with some scientific basis and those with absolutely none. My message about this situation to consumers, clinicians and researchers is don't fully accept what you hear as the truth. We, <clears throat> we all need to look at the current accepted wisdom and ask ourselves how good is the data supporting it. This of course is much harder for we consumers as patients as we're usually coming into a field of knowledge which is entirely new to us. Hence we have to rely to a large extent on the purveyors of information doing much of the legwork for us. When cancer guidelines <coughs> are developed, the literature searches categorise the value of evidence in tiered levels. And this seems to me a good way to go. Are they good, not so good, or no good at all? Or of little value, I should say. But how this is then interpreted into messages for patients and the public is another matter altogether. And then there are the anecdotal myths which percolate around, I'm sure you've all heard of them. And there have been some doozies, which lead people to make lifestyle changes based on no evidence of scientific value. Living pretty well with metastatic breast cancer, as I do, has taught me that I need to take a lot of responsibility in decision-making about the various treatment options that are possible for me. This entails finding good, reliable information, then making judgments about the quality of the evidence behind those options, as well as their likely risks and benefits for me with my specific cancer profile. It's never going to be easy for any of us, 
but good, well-prioritised research, faithfully communicated, will help us a lot. So back to cancer consumer advocacy and making a difference. Over recent years, the speaking up vehicle of consumer advocacy has become an essential and expected comp component of the way we in our society can make a difference in any field at all. In health, it's basically a matter of people who have experienced a major disease like cancer getting up on their hind legs and saying, and better still doing, something to improve the experience of others. The difference happens when we achieve better policies, more relevant directions of research, better aligned and coordinated cancer treatment, services, support and information. It's at this level that far-reaching decisions are made, ones that affect us all. Consumers can and do make a difference by putting forward their what's often called essential, inverted commas, essential perspective, gained through their own experiences and those of others like them. We can sum it up in the call, nothing about us without us. Cancer Consumer Advocacy in Australia has celebrated its 20th anniversary this year, started off in 1994. <laughs> and that journey is outlined in my uh, article in the current Cancer Forum Journal, which is out at the end of this month. There's a real difference between helping individuals manage their own cancer journeys, important of course, and the bigger picture. Action here will we trust significantly and positively influence the experience of individuals with cancer, and that's my focus. Many people assume that the work I do is something to do with fundraising for cancer and they expect this to be for cancer research. Fundraising is extremely important and many differences would not have been reached without it. However, I usually reply that no, we don't raise money, although fully supportive of those who do, but we want to try and tell other people how to spend the money, and we do. And we seek to influence the decision makers and the researchers about how it might be spent most effectively from our endpoint view. And there's an awful lot of us these days. This applies to public money spent on cancer research and cancer services too. So you see, you can see, we aim hard to give meaningful effect to our tagline, giving a voice to people affected by cancer. So their views, needs and ideas are taken on board and acted on by the ultimate decision makers. Another question often asked, and you can see I'm heading these off at the pass up front, is why do we use the term consumers? I know some people have difficulty with this when referring to a group of like-minded people getting into advocacy. We're definitely not out shopping and we can't choose our cancer. The term comes from the concept that people with cancer are indeed consuming something. They're consuming cancer services and the outcomes of research. We're not keen generically on being called patients, impatients more likely, neither do we like sufferers or victims. <coughs> oh, we do like, <laughs> we do like the sound of champagne bottles being open. And champagne is really good for cancer as long as you don't have too much. But we'll, work, we'll do a little, little uh, trial about that 
<laughs> once, once we're finished here. <clears throat> so far, no one has come up with a better description, so consumers it is. There are a number of areas on which we concentrate uh, at state, uh, state and federal cancer policy, treatment standards, investment in cancer centres, research support, and good accessible information, as I've mentioned. We leave cancer awareness to the promoters of public health, like government departments and their agencies, the cancer councils, and other charitable organisations. Not a good idea to try to duplicate uh, other people's work. We concentrate on the journey after diagnosis, after diagnosis and how it can be improved. Now a little bit about my story. How does breast cancer lead to wanting to make that difference? Some of this is ancient history as I've managed to survive breast cancer and cancer consumer advocacy for quite a long time. Nearly 20 years in fact. I was just 49 when I self-detected a lump in my left breast. Earlier we were going through. <laughs> Tend to do that. Uh, not there anymore so it's not much good patting it. <coughs> this was followed by not very satisfactory surgery and perfectly fine radiotherapy, the accepted treatment for early breast cancer in 1995. No chemo or tamoxifen recommended in those days. After publishing some reflections on those early experiences, I was invited by the then National Breast Cancer Centre to do a short training course in consumer advocacy and research. That switched on the proverbial light and I could see how using my paid career skills, I could do something, some meaningful giving back and make a real difference for other women. I soon left that paid career and formed the Breast Cancer Action Group, New South Wales in 1997, along with two colleagues in the front here who've been with, with us almost the whole time. Um, we then broadened our reach and increased the volume of the voices by setting up Cancer Voices New South Wales in 2000, so it's now 14 years old. And there just happened to be some leaflets on that red table out there, if you're interested. Yes, they're green. Green is the colour of cancer. <laughs> it's not the environment, it's cancer. <laughs> um, cancer Voices Australia, with which I remain very involved for national level issues, followed. I've most recently set up the Australian Cancer Consumer Network, which links 30 cancer consumer groups, some generic, like Cancer Voices, and others for specific cancers, some of which I'd never heard of before. This is being launched in federal parliament next week. From little things, in brackets, read ideas, big things grow. My own cancer keeps returning to remind me what that journey is really like. Biopsies, lumpectomies, radiotherapy, one mastectomy, <clears throat> one liver resection, CT scans, MRIs, this is probably very familiar to all of you, PET scans, endocrine therapies, and now an mTOR inhibitor. Don't ask me to explain it. But so far, although metastatic for many years, we, that is my medical team and I, are keeping it well at bay. Luckily, I can now take drugs which were only a twinkle in the eye of researchers when I was first diagnosed. And they are both, the two drugs I take, subsidised by the Pharmaceutical Benefits Scheme. So thank you very much to the compassionate taxpayer. Otherwise, it will be about $80,000 a year. 
Uh, I should say a few words about the value of consumer involvement in research as we're talking about research. From late last century, while my own cancer experience was getting underway, there was a growing awareness in some Western countries, and especially here in Australia, that the value of health and medical research was improved if and when the end beneficiaries, we consumers, had some involvement in it. This seems obvious to us today, but it took a few years and some persistence to turn a good concept into reality. And this is where the Young Cancer Voices found a willing partner in the Cancer Council, New South Wales. Together we developed the necessary framework for training consumers interested in cancer research, because you can't just hop into it even unless you have, if you have absolutely no idea about the processes and, uh, and the requirements. <clears throat> Not that we try to turn people into mini-researchers by any means. Training is held annually and its graduates work on grant application review with cancer research funders like the Cancer Council, the National Breast Cancer Foundation and Cancer Australia, as well as directly with researchers who are now usually required to show evidence that they have engaged consumer input into their work, are they not? Uh, researchers can be matched with trained, informed consumers by visiting Cancer Voices website, where there's a request function, and we have a database of over 80 keen people ready to work with you, you researchers. Those, that are, those who are researchers. <laughs> Other related Cancer Voices activities are offering <clears throat> priorities for research, priorities of the people affected by cancer. Uh, which we, we do by surveys, and even, even acting as one of a project's investigators or as a co-author of the peer-reviewed papers which are generated by researchers who have to generate them, generate them because if they don't publish, they perish. <laughs> My score so far is 20 so far. In conclusion, we're nearly getting back to that champagne, I guess it all comes back to passion, commitment and persistence and some understanding of the world in which you're applying those hard-to-measure concepts. It seems to me a no-brainer that people who use the services and who benefit from the research uh, must have some say about what they actually need. One or two people can't do this on their own, and as individuals alone, they wouldn't be taken seriously for starters. Worthwhile advocacy needs to be based on grassroots issues shared by many people. And that's what underpins all our work and gives us credibility in the eyes of the decision makers we want to influence. So it's important to keep asking people affected by cancer what they need, what problems or gaps they've encountered on their journey. It's often hard for the research and service providers themselves to recognise these issues, unless they've been through it, as Sharon has, as they, are coming from, as they are coming from the other side of the equation. We consumers need to be right there in the equation. After 20 years, we now are, and we're busy, very busy, making that difference. So I'm happy to answer questions. Any difficult ones that I've heard will be <laughs> sorted out by the, the Dean of the Faculty here. <laughs> And I hope I've, I might have stirred, any questions I hope I might have stirred in your breasts, if you have them. <laughs>
No, no, you don't get me. I just want to say, wow, two incredible women, a, a sceptical consumer and a sceptical researcher from the inside. It's absolutely fantastic. So, um, time for questions. Excellent presentations, both of you. Uh, this question's for Sharon. Um, so you, you showed a number of risk factors that by themselves really don't appear as risk factors, but is there any evidence that one of these may potentiate the, the another? So if you have them in combination, they actually become risk factors. Um, what, given the wide error bars, unlikely. What it, having worked with our statistician on campus, <laughs> um, Things like the combination of auxiliary node dissection and taxane chemotherapy, you, the two together multiplies, it's not just an additive, it multiplies the risk. Those wide error bars, um, really, of the things that women are typically cautioned about, aren't going to probably eventually anything. We've done another study where what we did, it was a cross-sectional study, but we've looked at this data over a year. It was sort of like the light bulb going off. I think there's two groups of women that get lymphedema. And I think that one group are very likely predisposed and something's gonna trigger it. No matter, and it's not, it's because physiologically they're different. We don't know, there's preliminary evidence out there that there's now some women genetically predisposed there was work done in the UK that really highlighted this, and there's been some preliminary genetic studies to support it. When we did this cross-sectional study, that there was a group of women with um, minimal changes in their arm. They had definitely had lymphedema, no doubt about it, but their arms were not um, well, very swollen. There was this other group where their arms were quite swollen. There was nothing in the middle. It was quite interesting. Given a cross-sectional study, you would expect people to be peppered all the way through. It wasn't. They were very polarized, which has really shifted where we're thinking. So I think there's a group, no matter what you do, they're going to probably, the slightest thing can be it. But you don't want to put fear in everybody because that's going to happen to someone. And that's my big issue with this um, area. Um, looking um, ahead, if I was set to get a uh, cancer breast cancer diagnosis um, tomorrow, would it be a good idea before I had surgery to get um, to go and um, have a garment prescribed and I purchase it?
Yes, Sharon. Um, I just wanted to inquire, while you've got all these markers regarding lymphedema, um, and I heard you say a number of times not wanting to um, impact people with fear, have you looked at the um, many psychosocial markers in relation to lymphedema? Um, Again, if I could echo what Michael said, two really good talks, so thank you very much. I've got a question both for Sally and Sharon, if I may. Um, for Sally, um, if I, I personally know the wonderful input that consumers have on researchers and the influence that consumers have on planning research and, in, and, and being involved in analysing the data and publicising it and so on. The question is, how easy is it for consumers to influence policymakers? <laughs> That's good. That's the question. That, that gives me a little chance to collect the answer. Um, it's on. Look, we've been doing this for 20 years, and we have managed to influence policymakers. You look at the huge investment which the last Labor government put into uh, capital expenditure in building big new cancer centres all around. Now that didn't just happen because somebody in Canberra thought it would be a good idea. Um, we've also managed to get PBS funding for some uh, drugs, which for instance, uh, the very famous one is the Herceptin case. Well, we have to, may, I mean, it's a long time ago now, but it was, that was a really big campaign by women with breast cancer. Um, and we got, well, we didn't actually manage to get it funded by the PBAC, or many people think that by the PBS, many people think it had to be a special pot in Medicare, which hasn't ever happened again, and we don't particularly want that to happen again, but I think we got the message across that uh, if there were a sufficient and compelling set of arguments coming from the people who would benefit from the drug, that maybe government better listen up. So, yes, I think we... Um, incrementally, so, or sometimes with a big bang, and sometimes it's drip, 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 but uh, yes, it's, I wouldn't keep doing it if I didn't think it was good. <laughs> and and uh, my colleagues here, Elizabeth and, and Roberta, have both been involved in a similar sort of thing, and uh, of course you would agree, wouldn't you? <laughs> yes. Well, maybe us as researchers have a lot to learn in that regard as well from the consumers. Maybe um, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> um, the second question, if I may, for, for Sharon. I found one statistic particularly interesting that living without a partner increased the risk of lymphedema. Now, was this because 
this was an older population, or was it simply just because they? I know, I know that men bring lots of value into a woman's life, but I'm just <laughs> particular. <laughs> Excuse me, it's related to the first question. Do you think that the doctors, oncologists, the multidisciplinary group who work for uh, decision of the, few of, the, of the treatment, they are, uh, they, their strategy or they, uh, they work regarded, regarding if it is a private or it is not uh, the costs and so they give, they give different ways of treatment or drugs. I'll try, I'll try to repeat it, yes. Um, look, this is a very difficult question to answer. Um, do, we, do I think that uh, treatment in private and public settings uh, is different because of the kind of treatment you're offered? Is that basically it? Yeah, and that the, 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 in the private sector you may well be offered more expensive treatment. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, look, it, it's, it is, it is, it's a very complex, it's an easy thing for me to say, but it is a very complex situation. Um, big public hospitals have well-established cancer centres and multidisciplinary teams where you probably will get this is off the record. You'll probably get the best treatment for cancer. <laughs> Look, there are some big private hospitals which also have excellent cancer centres with multidisciplinary teams and the support and the information is on as well. There are a lot of small clinics which uh, don't have those, that same sort of service. Uh, would you pay more? Yeah, there's also, we, we get a lot of, uh, quite a number of complaints about costs of having to pay upfront in the private sector and not knowing what you're going to be up for and what your private health insurance will cover. It's a whole vexed area and some people end up paying a lot of money they weren't expecting to have to pay. Um, so thank you for the question. It's a difficult one and you can see I'm a little uncomfortable about it because one doesn't want to go making blanket statements about which kind of treatment is better than the other one, but what we have. <laughs> Chemotherapy. Yes, well, this is where guidelines are very important. In fact, one of the things we've been advocating, lobbying for, is uh, clinical practice guidelines, 
uh, in radiotherapy they exist and um, they've been adopted quite well. In medical oncology they don't exist. Um, there, there is a, a, a website called um, EBIQ, run by the Cancer Institute, which anybody can get into and have a look and see what the, the regimes for chemotherapy are, but it's not the same as clinical practice guidelines, which is the, what you should expect for the treatment of your cancer. Um, and we very much hope that we can talk the <coughs> medical oncology profession into developing them one day. <laughs> I have a question around um, compassionate um, grounds. You know when you can get medication that's not available. Do you get involved with that? Does the advocacy get involved with that? And does that build up you know, history for one day for it to be on the PBS? Yes. Is that well, a common usually, thing? Usually when a new drug is introduced and it's, it seems to be a promising one and medical oncologists are keen to, to prescribe it and patients are keen to get it, and it's not on the PBS. Um, most pharmaceutical companies do offer a compassionate scheme. And that this mTOR inhibitor I'm on at the moment, um, I almost had to apply to get onto a compassionate scheme, but luckily it came through just in time. <laughs> and my medical oncologist didn't have to go through the very complicated process of getting her patient onto it. But yeah, look, they, they, they exist. I mean, it's really, it's in the hands of the pharmaceutical company itself as to how long they support the drug being used in the market that way. But it's in their interest because the more people who are successfully using it, um, the more compelling it is for government to eventually subsidise it. So your advocacy was actually working with that site? Is it done by the pharmaceutical company? Uh, well, yeah. No, we wouldn't get involved until we got the stage of wanting it to be uh, subsidised through the pharmaceutical benefit scheme. Hello, um, this question is for Sharon. Um, my name is Kat and um, I actually got diagnosed with uh, breast cancer two years ago and um, I was very lucky enough to, um, I actually work at RPA as a nurse and I was lucky enough to have access to a lymphedema clinic there. So in the very beginning I was measured for um, a sleeve for my arm and um, I had like all those bioimpedance tests. Um, so I was lucky enough not to get lymphedema, but I'm very, I've got my sleeve here tonight <laughs> that I carry around with me in case. And um, it is true, all those things. Um, I do exercise and I find that it actually helps with the lymphedema, but I'm two years on. Um, my question is, I, um, after I got diagnosed, after surgery, I had a condition called cording. I don't know whether you're aware of this, but um, a lot of people that I saw, the physios and um, even um, cl other clinicians weren't aware of what that is. And I was wondering whether there will be some more research being done on this area because a lot of people don't understand it. And even when I try and Google it, there's not much research out there about this condition. where the lymphatic vessels themselves have become inflamed and so they get quite taut. And what you'll see, particularly in the axilla, the underarm is some really tight bands going through there. Very painful for the person, yep. And so um, there has been very little research in that. Um, one of the things that they think it might, one of the things that might contribute to it is 
this whole idea of protecting your arm, not moving it, so that once when you do go to move it, all of a sudden things that haven't been moved, they've had surgery up in there, you're pulling on it, it gets irritated, it gets inflamed. Um, it's a hard one to study here, like at Lighthouse, at Westmead, where we do research, because it's actually not that common occurrence. Um, it's quite interesting talking to American colleagues. Um, it's very common there. Um, and we know there's not a lot of research in that area. It seems that there's a lot of mobilization techniques they use for gentle, you know, not to cause it more pain, um, gentle stretching through that region. And for most people, it does subside. going to have the other side affected, bet you I'd have that garment on. It's not the high compression though. This is where we need to really understand. I've got um, one of my MRS colleagues here. We're looking at compression. There's a belief that more compression the better. If you, when you're going for taxanes, your lymphatics are still working and existing. If you give high levels of compression, you're probably compressing them too, making them ineffective. It's more, when I'm talking about um, compression as prevention, I'm looking, we're going to be looking at the first place, something like the lighter weight airplane garments they prescribe for airplane travel, not the prescriptive ones once you do have lymphedema. So, and they're a lot cheaper. Yeah. <laughs> Well, the lobbyists actually, Rob, Roberta is working, um, is part of a group that are really trying to shift policy so that they are provided under Medicare, yes. under Medicare scheme. Yeah. The thing is, the more active you are, like with exercise, regardless, just, you're yep. just absolutely just strengthening. We're also working, I, I'm also working with a biomedical engineer over at NSW who's looking at developing um, a very different type of garment, um, some of you may have been involved in questionnaires for her, that much more um, better suited to the Australian climate, they're much lighter weight, like there's been a sh big shift with materials and things like that, um, that Jobst and some of these other companies, big companies have probably not kept um, up with. Um, she's coming from a very different perspective with her biomedical engineering and uh, so we're hoping to come up with a much better solution, longer wearing, but much lighter, still doing the job. And <laughs> I'd like to say congratulations to you, Sally. I've known you for many, many years, and I know you have worked tirelessly for Cancer Voices and for women here in Australia. Congratulations. I have a question, and I'm not sure whether you can answer it or not. I'm actually a volunteer with the medical students in Wollongong. And um, 
I have breast examinations with these young students who are now learning. And uh, just last week, I had a breast examination with the young students. And there were three ways that they were saying that you could diagnose breast cancer. And that was an ultrasound, a um, mammogram, or an MRI. Now, having had um, the ultrasound and the mammogram, and I can say from experience that I think the mammogram is barbaric, and they will look <laughs> back in time and say, my God, how did they ever do those mammograms? But I just wonder... And they don't have manograms, do they? No, and I think if men had their penis inside a mammogram, there'd be a whole different story. <laughs> but anyhow, what, I'm, what I would like to know is, um, is it at all possible that the MRIs could be the way forward for breast cancer diagnosis and is that something that we could get on the PBS so that it doesn't cost a fortune and I know that there are only so many MRI uh, machines available but seriously isn't it time that we stop this mammogram um, uh, Helen, thank you very way much. that we use it. Thank you firstly for the very kind words and we have known each other for a long time. It's lovely to see you sitting there smiling at me encouragingly. Which is Look, I think this is a rather technical area that I can't really comment on. If but you Sharon. Know about me. Uh, okay. This is his whole area of expertise. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for that, Sharon. Thank you for passing the buck. <laughs> Um, the, certainly the MRI is very, very powerful and useful for detecting cancers. It's, 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 it's um, the quality that's generated with MRI is exquisitely good. The problem is it finds lots of other things that are not relevant to cancer, but look suspicious. And therefore this is the issue with MRI. The first problem is it can't be a screening tool because we can't have MRIs in all these centers because they cost too much. They can't, you know, to bring them out as a mobile clinic, we can't do that with MRIs. But the other problem is that they do find lots and lots of false positives. By false positives, we mean things that look like cancer but aren't, and this is the tricky thing. What I would say is that um, and the, you mentioned ultrasound as well. Ultrasound is really good for differentiating. If you see something already, for differentiating whether it's benign or malignant. That's, that's where ultrasound is very useful. In terms of mammography, and I, I am very aware that I'm one of the few males in the audience, it still is the gold standard, particularly for screening. But there's a new machine on the horizon that has arrived in Australia within the last two years, and that's digital breast tomosynthesis. Now, digital breast tomosynthesis is basically a mammogram, but it moves across the breast. The women experiences the same sort of thing, but perhaps less compression. It, but perhaps less compression, because the quality of the image is so much better. It allows us, and all 95% of the studies that we have on uh, digital breast tomosynthesis, and there are lots of them now, would suggest that we can see the cancer much more clearly with digital breast tomosynthesis, and we can reduce the number of false positives, the number of unnecessary recourse. So digital breast tomosynthesis is probably the next stage 
in the, in the uh, screening evolution in, in, in Australia. It still compresses the breast, but because of its better quality, we would hope we need to compress it less. Hi, um, I just wondered if, um, I know your study is focusing on lymphedema of the arm. I'm just wondering if you're looking at lymphedema in the rest of the body at all. Yeah, um, you know, I just asked because I had um, taxane chemotherapy. I had taxane chemotherapy this year, and I gained nearly 10 kilos in weight, which I haven't been able to lose. And my oncologist says that it's probably it's mostly fluid, um, yeah. and um, and there's no, but no one seems to care that it, it will just go eventually, or there's nothing I can do to help it, or you know, like it's. Hi, you're 
talks were both great. I really enjoyed it. I'm a, um, my name's Mish. I'm a, a lymphedema physio and really interested in you know, what the research that you've been doing, Sharon, that 15 years ago when I first started in this. Yeah, that's exactly the advice. Don't lift too many heavy weights. And um, you know, the ongoing education that I've done is, is that now we actually say, yes, you do need to do. So all those myths, I think, myth-busting, which is an interesting thing 15 years ago, that's exactly what I remember telling patients. But um, my frustration is, um, I wonder, all this research that you sort of is coming to light now, um, is this being disseminated to, A, medical students, GPs, and breast cancer doctors, oncologists, and that, because that seems to be, you know, we're becoming educated, we keep tabs with the research, um, but what are patients hearing? Because I would imagine the GP is the first person that when you get that diagnosis, is that that's your person before they refer you on to someone. And I mean, I asked my, my GP, and she's in an area of Sydney where I would imagine, and I said to her, how many lymphedema patients do you have? And she said, one. And I was like, what? Because <laughs> I worked in the private sector and I worked in public, and I thought, that's not possible. Um, so yeah, I was kind of, she didn't know anything about bioimpedance and all the, the new research that's, um, I think Macquarie Hospital are going to be doing that, um, you know, looking at, the, trying to look at the subclinical lymphedema that, um, or yeah, pick that up. Right, yeah. That, yeah. yeah, that's I think what maybe I misrepresented it, sorry. I've only just kind of gone to um, Louise Colmeyer's talk on, on all of that, so. Okay, that's sort of how it was referred to, yeah. There's still quite a bit of work to be done there. Yeah, yeah. so it is about communication that um, encouraging, like I did the webinar recently for the ALA um, on looking at this practice, so that's getting out to the clinicians involved in the conferences. Um, Thanks. So a bit more work to do, it looks like, which is great. You're all here. You leave with a job. <laughs> so... Um, I'll just draw it to a close now, but of course, we'd love you to stay and keep eating and drinking, and they will be here for further questions. But first, thank you very much, both of you. You can see the consumer is critical, whatever you want to call yourself. The consumer, the shopper, is absolutely critical to the research that we do um, because it's not about people, it's, it's with and for people with, with cancer and particularly breast cancer. 
So thank you for those fabulous talks um, and for the questions. But, you know, there wasn't a lot of challenge. So now is your chance to say, what about? And it wasn't like that for me and all those kinds of things. So stay and help them to understand even more deeply. Um, there's a lot of work for our consumer advocates to do. And there was a critical question about private versus public healthcare. And I think it's something we just absolutely need to keep at the front of our minds because I was listening to something this morning where they were saying that Aboriginal patients with heart disease actually are getting different standard of care, different quality of valve replacements from other public patients. We have to make sure that this is not happening in breast cancer, well actually healthcare in Australia, but certainly not in our area. Look at this amazing group of consumer advocates. We, we can make sure that we're on top of that. So thank you. We welcome you back next year for our series, Thought Leaders, well, there is a slide amongst that that says, Thought Leaders Shaping Health. Look at this, our thought leaders, the consumers and the researchers, absolutely shaping health for the future. Thank you.